The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City. Good morning, Story City. Uh, uh, please stand for the God's word. The scripture reading today will be from uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verses uh, 19 through 22. Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ. To the weak, I became weak. In order to win the weak, I have become all things to all people, so that I may by every possible means save some. I read it in Farsi. زیرا با اینکه از همه آزادم خود را غلام همه ساختم تا عده بیشتر را دریابم. نزد یهودیان چون یهودی رفتار کردم تا یهودیان را دریابم. با آنان که زیر شریعتن همچون کسی که زیر شریعت است رفتار کردم تا آنان را که زیر شریعتن دریابم. هرانچند خود زیر شریعت نیستم نزد بیشریعتان همچون بیشریعت رفتار کردم تا بیشریعتان را دریابم هرچند خود بدون شریعت خدا نیستم بلکه مطیع شریعت مسیحم با ضعیفان ضعیف شدم تا ضعیفان را دریابم هر کس را همه چیز گشتم تا به هر نف بعضی را نجات بخشم This is the word of the Lord Thank you, Kat and Raha. That sounds like the perfect 70s, like, hippie rock. Kat and Raha. I can see, like, total, you know, 21-window bus traveling with a bunch of people you guys picked up on the side of the road. Kat and Raha, that is, that's epic. I love it. I'm not going to get that picture out of my head. That's fantastic. Uh, well, good morning. Welcome to the Burbank location of Story City Church. How are you guys doing this morning? Yeah, you guys are awake for first service. Congratulations. I love it. My name is Jared. I have the honor of being one of the, the pastors here. I am stoked that you're with us. I want to welcome those of you who are online and those who are visiting us for the first time this morning. It is truly an honor to have you. Uh, yeah. Before we go any farther, I've got a little family business I've got to attend to. And so for those of you just visiting, uh, I, I hope that you will uh, bear Uh, with us for just a few minutes. Easter is only 14 days away. Yeah. Yeah, for pastors, this is like our Super Bowl. So uh, it's, it's beautiful and stressful, right? There's a lot going on. Uh, but here's the deal. Easter is an excellent opportunity. A lot of people are more open to going to church because of that. And so it's an excellent opportunity to invite people, to welcome people in, people who don't normally attend or who don't have a church home. If somebody's already got a church home, don't steal them from another church, Right. That's not, that's not helpful. Um, but here's the deal. Many guests who come may not have experienced church before 
or they may not have experienced church in a way that is uh, as welcoming or generous or just friendly as, uh, as what we are trying to be here. And so uh, with this in mind, I would like us who call Story City home to see this as an opportunity to love and serve our guests, our neighbors. If we can look at it like that, it would be really helpful. And, and, and that's important every single week, but especially in Easter because we have a higher uh, population of guests, and we want to do that well. So here's what I'm asking for, okay? There is an ask. This is it. We could use some extra volunteers. We don't normally have ushers in this room. We would really like four ushers per service just to make sure that we can get everybody to those empty seats. We can get everybody to those places where they're at. And then also when we need to set up extra chairs, we can do that. And then we need eight more of you in the children's ministry, four per service. So here's what we need. Uh, Laura tells me we need one additional person for each service to help with check-in. That means just being the smiling, welcoming, friendly face. I promise we will not harm your kids. That trusting face that people say, like, okay, our kids are going to be safe. Uh, We need three additional helpers for each service. One for nursery, holding babies. Like, that is a great job. One for the toddlers. That's also fun, especially if you like running. Uh, And uh, to help with the uh, teacher with the lesson and craft. And then one for elementary. But here's the deal. The elementary classroom, they have popcorn in there. I'm just saying it's a good bonus there. So um, here's the deal. We're asking for additional volunteers so that nobody on Easter, we like to say that we want you to attend one, serve one, or serve one, attend one. We don't want anybody stuck uh, serving both services and not getting to enjoy Easter services. So this is why we're asking for additional volunteers. We normally don't have children's open both services, and because we are trying to get open both services That is why we're asking you to serve. So if you want to help with ushering or anything else we could use help with, see them at the next steps tables. Let them know that you want to sign up. That'd be great. If you want to uh, see help in nursery or toddlers or elementary with Laura, she will be at the table in the back, uh, just in the grass there after service. Please see her, and she would be stoked to help you get started. All right? Let's pray, and we'll get back into this. Father, thank you for, for just how good you are. Thank you for your mercy, your grace. As Gavin was praying, Lord, thank you that you have given all of this to us, not because of something we've done, but because of how good you are. Help us to hear your heart behind these words this morning. I pray that you would keep me from being in the way of anything you're trying to do, and that you would bless this time, that we would know you more and love you more as a result of this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, open your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians. Uh, The Bible is divided into two parts. It's divided Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, Jesus has always existed. The Old Testament is basically leading us up to Jesus, the promise of the rescued Messiah. And the New Testament starts with the birth of Jesus and the ushering in of the new kingdom. Uh, The New Testament starts with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. If you keep going, you're going to get to 1 Corinthians. It's right there. That's where we're at this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 19 to 27. So we're going to read a little bit more than Raha read this morning. It says this. Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I've made myself a slave to everyone. That's a weird statement, right? But this is going to get into what he's continuing to talk about from the last few weeks. And he says, I do this in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. I can't help but read that and keep that song plays in my head, uh, I Fought the Law and the Law Won. I don't know about you guys, that, that every time I hear that, it's just me. Okay, I got it. 
To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak, I have become weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that I may by every possible means save some. There's a theme going on there. Now, I do all this because of the gospel, so that I may share in the blessings. Don't you know that the runners in the stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we, an imperishable crown. So, I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Okay, there's a lot here, and I am super passionate about this, so I promise I will not go over two to three hours this service, okay? But uh, for those of you joining us uh, who are still trying to figure this Jesus thing out, you're trying to figure out, uh, my apprenticing Jesus or not apprenticing Jesus, I, I want you to notice this message is aimed at those who are already apprenticing him. And I'm, I'm glad you're here. Welcome. I, I hope that this will be like a peek behind the curtain for you of what Jesus says is our responsibility as followers of Jesus to, to actually share him and how and why we're supposed to do that. So sit back, relax, and you get to peek behind the curtain. That's pretty cool. In verses 19 to 22, Paul gives us the what he is trying to do. I'm all things to all people. In verse 23, we see the why that is driving him. And in verse 24 to 27, Paul gives us the how he is going to be successful and sustained. And so today, we're actually going to start with the why first. That's a big deal for us here at Story City is starting with the why. Um, And so we're going to do that today as we understand what drives Paul. And so for those of you taking notes today, this is our big idea. Because we live within the gospel, we must live out the gospel. I'm going to say that again. Because we live within the gospel, we must live out the gospel. And today we're going to explore how we must live in and live out a gospel that is missional, a gospel that is relational, and a gospel that is intentional. So let's go back and see what is driving Paul today. Starting in verse 23, Paul says this. Here's our why. Now, I do all of this because of the gospel. I do all of this because of the gospel. The gospel is what is driving Paul. And then he says, the benefit of that is that I get to share in the blessings. The blessings are not why he's doing that. The blessings are the result of the gospel. So the gospel, it's what's driving Paul. Now, if I were to poll five apprentices of Jesus and ask, what is the gospel? I would get nine different answers. But the gospel is the most, it's singularly important for us in Christianity. For those of us who are trying to follow Jesus, for those of us who are apprenticing, right? We say apprenticing because an apprentice is somebody who learns at the feet of the master. They make mistakes, but they're constantly watching and learning and engaged with. I love the way Pastor J.D. Greer says uh, what he says the gospel is. He says it's not like the ABCs where you learn it and you master it and then you move on. It's It's a well that you dig deeper and deeper and deeper into for life. You have to keep coming back to it. It shapes the way that we think about ourselves, the way we think about God, the way we think about people, the way we think about the world, the way we think about work. There is nothing the gospel doesn't shape in us. And everything we do has to be filtered through our understanding of the gospel. So what is the gospel? 
Here we go. God created the kingdom, and he is creator king over that kingdom. He created men and women in his image after his likeness. And so the invisible God created humans to be a visible display, a picture of what he is like. That's our job. Our job is actually to point to God. Everything we do of what he's like. And though, even though he is king, he's made humans his representatives in that kingdom. We see this in Genesis. He makes us responsible for leading his kingdom and taking care of his kingdom. He tasks us to trust him, to obey him, to be his representations. We are terrible at that. But Adam and Eve were the first to reject that call. They decided they wanted to do things on their own. They didn't fully trust God was doing what was best for them. And they said, we can take care of ourselves better. And so they rejected God's plan for them. And they took their own plan. And in doing so, they committed treason against God. In committing treason, they became sinful. They began to die spiritually, as would any of their offspring throughout the rest of humanity. That is us. This is why the Bible says we are born into sin. And so every human for all of eternity was born under the judgment and wrath of God. And each of us is born dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins with no hope of waking ourselves up. In addition to living under the wrath of God and dying spiritually, we're made to leave the garden. And so the perfect relationship between humans and God, the perfect relationship between humans and humans, And the perfect relationship between humans and creation between the earth gets clapped. But God has a plan to rescue and redeem all creation. And so God makes several covenants, but he makes a covenant starting with Abraham. He goes all the way down and makes a covenant with David that through this family line, (coughs) excuse me, God would bring restoration and reconciliation through a Messiah. That Messiah would be God and he would take the wrath of God and the sins of the elect on himself. Through his death and resurrection, then he would give his own righteousness to those that he rescued. All of this is accomplished in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah, comes as fully God and fully man at the same time. He becomes our redeemer that takes on God's uh, wrath, our sin, and our punishment on himself so that we can be reconciled to the Father with our debt paid. It's not like he says, oh, don't worry about it, I'll forgive you. He says, no, punishment still needs to be given out. But instead of punishing you, I'm going to punish Jesus. That is the gospel. Family, if we understand the implications of that, it's overwhelming to think that clearly it's undeserved, but it's overwhelming to think that God would have extended that to us for no other sake than the sake that he's good. For those taking notes today, this brings us to our first observation as to how we live in and live out the gospel. Point number one is that the gospel is missional. The gospel is missional. When we truly get this, there's some things I want us to stand out about this story. First and foremost, we understand that God is a pursuant God. That means God is a missionary to us. That is weird. Every religion in the world says you've got to do what you've got to do to get to God. And Christianity says, no, the high God of heaven came to find you. Second, 
That if he came to find us, it means that there's nothing we could do to get to him, to bridge those gaps. That means that there is nothing we could do to rescue ourselves, to save ourselves, to bring ourselves to life from the dead. It can't happen. And so God is a God who is not only a missionary God, but God that extends this grace to us and wakes us up spiritually. That means that we have no control of our own salvation. We have no control or no claim to the righteousness that he gives us. We have no claim to the faith that he's given us. That all comes from him. It's not ours, but it's the grace of, the God, a grace of God given to us for no other reason than he was pleased to do so. I don't know about you, but that's... I could walk away right now and we'd be done. That's enough. The third, if we remember the way that we were created as the image bearers of God, the, the term for that is the imago Dei, there's a lot of churches named Imago Dei. That's why. If you drive by, that's what they're saying. The image of God. And if our job is still to be a visible display of who God is and how he loves and how he leads, then we are called then to be missionaries as well. Because that's who God is. Because apprentices of Jesus have received all of this grace and mercy and forgiveness and restoration from God, then we are to be the ambassadors of those things for God. In other words, because we live in the gospel, we have to learn how to live out the gospel. You guys with me this morning? Good. That's not bad for first service. I'm impressed. Now, this is exactly what's driving Paul. This is what he's getting to. This brings us to the last thing I want to notice from this section. Family, we cannot model or share the gospel with those who need it if we are not around those who need it. I wish you knew how many pastors I know who don't have a single friend who's not an apprentice of Jesus. We get so tied up in trying to lead our churches and do things and we're talking about how to share our faith and what it means to interact with people who are not apprenticing Jesus and yet so many of my friends don't have any relationship with anybody who's not already in that spot. Some of us find ourselves there today too. We cannot share who Jesus is and what he's done if we're not around those who need Jesus. For those taking notes today, this is our second observation as to how we live in and live out the gospel. The gospel is relational. The gospel is relational. It's not a class. It's not something that uh, back when I was growing up, some of you guys might have seen the Jesus Revolution movie. That's the era that I came up in. Uh, the, the, one of the guys in that story is named Lonnie Frisbee. Lonnie Frisbee is a guy that prayed over me when I was eight years old and gave me my call to ministry, told me I was going to be a pastor. Uh, he was absolutely right. Those, those moments are, are moments that I will remember and treasure forever. Um, but we have, we have to understand that it is a relationship that is built. We have to be uh, with those people and around those people that, that, uh, that God is calling us to. We have to be uh, friends with people that look different, that act different, that sound different, that vote different. We need to be around people that make us uncomfortable. The gospel is relational. Let's go back and look at the first part of our passage today. Verse 19 says this, although I am free and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. 
to those who are without the law, like one without the law, to those I am not, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those with, without the law. To the weak I became weak, in order to win the weak, I become all things to all people, so that I might by every possible means save some. Now, what is Paul not saying? Paul is not saying that he is some spiritual chameleon that changes his beliefs or opinions or, or tries to change his personality around the people he is around. He's not saying he's a different person to everybody. He's not saying that he lives in a way that no one knows what he stands for. Well, I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable, so I'm just going to go along and do this. That's not what Paul is talking about. No, what Paul's paying, talking about is that he's paying attention, that he knows and understands the people that he is hanging out with, that he understands them, that he's gotten to know them well. This is a passage about contextualization. Paul is saying that if each of us is to be a missionary, sent to model who God is and how he loves, then we had better make sure we're modeling the gospel in a way that makes sense to those that we are talking to. Can you imagine being a missionary and being like, um, okay, I've, I've gone to your country, now you need to learn my language so you can understand what I'm saying. If you haven't studied the story of a, of a missionary named Hudson Taylor, I highly encourage you to. One of the beauties of Hudson Taylor is that uh, he was uh, rejected by many of the missionary organizations of his day. Uh, and, and so Hudson Taylor goes over. He finally finds somebody that will finally sponsor him. He goes over to China, and Hudson Taylor uh, uh, notices that what they're doing is not working because the goal of being a missionary to China at that time was not about bringing them Jesus, it was, but it was bringing them Jesus as a part of westernizing the culture. And they looked at everybody like, well, you're savages until you have this western ideal, and once you become more western, then we know that you're a Christian. And Hudson was like, this is not working, and so Hudson actually adopted the dress of a Chinese scholar. He changed his hairstyle, he changed his robes, and he began to learn the language in order to speak to those who were Chinese in a manner that, that was uh, one that they understood. And what happened was many Chinese people became Christians under Hudson, but instead of saying, all right, now you have to be Western, Hudson Taylor said, take this understanding of Jesus back into your own cultures because you can speak to your culture better than I could. And many, many, many of the Christians who are Chinese Christians today came from Hudson Taylor's movements. There's a report that just came out that said that uh, some people believe that in the next 20 years, there'll be more Christians in China than there will be in the United States. It's because of Hudson Taylor, in large part. It's because of Jesus, through Hudson Taylor, but you understand what I'm trying to say. Okay, so Paul's calling us to be missionaries, and he's saying, look, you have to model a gospel in a way that makes sense to the people that you're reaching, right? Family, one more thing. When, when we uh, just invite people to church as our only form of like, here's how you come to know God, you're asking somebody to be a missionary to the church because you're saying, hey, I know we speak a different language. We have some really weird Christianese that we speak. I know that, uh, that culturally things are, are really different for you. I know that we sing songs you're not used to, but I'd like you to overcome all of these barriers, these cultural barriers, these language barriers. I'd like you to overcome all of these things and come to us. And this is exactly what God says. You've got to go out and build relationships with people. Outside. Now, it's not by accident that this conversation Paul is having talks about his freedom in Christ. It's not an accident that he's sharing just a few chapters before about, about eating meat with people uh, and not eating meat with people and what he has to do when it's right. 
Whether it's sacrifice to idols or not, in some sense he says, I'm not worrying about it. In others he says, look, I'll give up meat forever if it saves people. And so this is exactly what he's referring to in verse 20. And so this idea of contextualization is not a wishy-washy thing. It is born out of Paul's deep desire to be living in and living out the gospel. And one of the greatest examples of this is found in, we just celebrated this, St. Patrick's Day, right? Uh, I, I love this. St. Patrick is one of my heroes. St. Patrick, if you don't know the story, was captured and enslaved by the Celts. God actually gave him a dream, told him he's going to escape. He does. He goes back. He actually becomes a priest. And then God won't leave him alone and says, you have to go back to the the Celts. And he's like, God, I don't think you understand. They enslaved me. That was not fun. I don't enjoy that. And God said, that's exactly where you're going. And so he did. And Patrick's return uh, led to an incredible gospel work, not only just in the conversion of the Celts and the Picts, but this missionary work actually came back to Rome and revitalized a dead and dying Roman church as well. And so God used Patrick's ministry and the Celtic way to actually uh, revitalize the church in Rome. In his book, The Celtic Way of Evangelism, which I highly recommend, George Hunter III writes this. He writes, Indeed, that Patrick understood their people, their language, their issues, and their ways serves as the most strategically significant insight that was to drive the wider expansion of Celtic Christianity and stands as perhaps our greatest single learning from this movement. There is no shortcut to understanding the people. Listen to this. When you understand the people, you often know what to say, do, and how. When the people know that the Christians understand them, they infer that maybe Christianity's high God understands them too. I agree. I agree. And why does any of this matter to us? Now, some of us grew up in what I would call a Christian culture. A Christian culture is one where where Christianity is understood well enough, even by those who weren't following Jesus or apprenticing Jesus, that the, the culture in the area you grew up in is strong enough that you could make a Bible reference that people would understand. You could mention... Jonah, and people be like, yeah, 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 I I know, that's the guy that got swallowed, right? Whether they believe it or not, the culture you grew up in influenced heavily the way that people think. Even those who don't apprentice Jesus would have to claim to be a Christian uh, because it would be necessary to be a part of mainstream culture in the town. So for instance, someone running for mayor, for example, would know the unwritten rule is that she would need to claim to be a Christian in order to get uh, elected as mayor. Others of us grew up in a culture that proceeded from that culture, what I would refer to as a post-Christian culture. This is a culture that uh, some of us grew up in that was actively working to distance itself from those Judeo-Christian values, uh, seeing those things often as the problem in society and not the solution in society. Many of us come from this. It might have been a university town or just a significant movement by the younger generation. The way that you see this is most oftentimes you see like grandparents who are super devout, super religious. Maybe even a building of the church is named after them. And, and, and those grandparents love Jesus, but they, their kids are moral, not Jesus followers. And so the grandchildren see the moralism of their parents and they're like, that's not right. That's hypocrisy. They would see the church as tragically flawed and broken, but without any hope of fixing it. And so many of you came from these places and these homes. Your parents would be fighting like cats and dogs until the doorbell rang. And then all of a sudden, everybody's happy and everything's good because you have to put on the good Christian face for those who are around. 
you're fighting like cats and dogs all the way up into church until the door opens and it's like, we'll talk about this afterwards. The door slams and you put on the happy face for church. And those kids who see that, what they understand is that the gospel isn't real. It's an act we put on. And so they've rejected that or they've rejected it, the church, because of the way it treats people that are disenfranchised or marginalized. They struggle to see true life or love or hope in the religion of their parents. And yet a third category is some of us grew up where there was no noticeable Christian influence whatsoever. We may have grown up with non-religious parents or parents of another religion or parents with multi-religions. I can't tell you how many people I've met here in Los Angeles that are like, oh, you're the very first Christian I've ever met. I thought you'd be way weirder. And so uh, those who grew up in this place where they didn't have that noticeable influence, at least that they're aware of, have a caricature of Jesus and a caricature of Christians in their mind. I thought you guys all like, you know, wore ankle length dresses and doilies in your head. Isn't that what you guys are supposed to do? And so they don't have a real-life example to compare with what a Christian is supposed to be. They just have this caricature. More and more of our country is becoming post-Christian. But places that are culture-setting like Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco, Surprise, Arizona. Okay, San Francisco is probably an exaggeration. They've already transitioned to what I would call pre-Christian pagan culture. It's a place that Europe has been in for a long time. I have some pastor friends in Europe. I've been talking to them over the last decade. What are you experiencing? How is the gospel working? What is happening? And, and, and what are our people wrestling with? And it is so clearly the same things we're wrestling with here in Los Angeles. And it's not that there aren't movements of Christianity in a pre-Christian pagan environment. It's just that Christianity is not the predominant culture in a way that it would be in a Christian or even a post-Christian culture. Now, the way... This matters because the way we share the gospel in these different contexts is is very different. If we are, I I love it. (laughs) Clearly the kids are having a good time. That's fantastic. I'm just thankful we have kids, right? That's a good thing. Okay, now the way we share the gospel is different in the context. So here's the deal. If we are in a predominantly Christian context, then the way that we share the gospel is giving examples from the gospel. Hey, you know what? Your story sounds like, Jonah. If I have never had any Christian influence, I'm like, who the heck is Jonah? The closest I might be is like, I think I heard that in a VeggieTales thing one time. And so we're, we, we are pointing people back to Scripture or back to a story in the Bible. That is how you share the gospel to somebody who's like, I, I grew up with this, but I don't understand it. You can help them understand by utilizing those things. Even if they don't believe it, they understand the context. In a post-Christian context, no matter what we do, it's an argument. You might be arguing apologetically. Hey, look, let me help you think of this different. You might be arguing a different philosophy. Hey, that's a great philosophy, but here's where it breaks down. Or you might just be arguing, I'm so sorry that you experienced that. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. I'm sorry that you ran into Christians who, who explained that in a way or who lived that in a way or who modeled that in a way that was harmful. But no matter how we frame it, it's an argument back to the Bible. Listen, family, in a pre-Christian pagan culture, if we try to use biblical examples, it's like speaking a foreign language. If you try to use a Christian or post-Christian ways of evangelism in a pre-Christian pagan context, we come across as angry and argumentative. Our attempt to say, I love you, comes across as, I hate you, and I don't care about you. 
In fact, in a pre-Christian pagan culture, because of the caricature, there's a high suspicion of anything Christian. You've experienced this here in Los Angeles. That means that not only do we have to be careful not to shut people down by the way that we talk or the tone that we use in our conversations, but we have to come to a place of relationship first before we try to offer anything, before we want something from them. Family, too often Christians have used transactional evangelism. In other words, because I gave you this, you owe me something back. I'm going to give you this free event at my church. Come and enjoy. All I ask is your email address. Guess what? That's no different than any of the companies that are giving you 10% to try and get your information. That's not free. It's just couched as something else. We're not saying I love you just for the sake of I love you, and if you never come to my church, it's okay. But that's what we should be doing. Because apprentices of Jesus were given the gospel and the grace and love and forgiveness for free before it was earned. A relational gospel is one that must give those things away for free as well without expecting something in return. We have to trust, family, that the Holy Spirit will do the work. We simply go, this is who Jesus is and this is who I am. And if nothing ever comes to that, I just want you to know I love you for who you are, not because I want something from you or want you to do something. This is important because those who wonder if Christians are all hypocrites or if Christianity actually is the summation of everything bad they've ever heard or if Christians are truly actually living out what they said, they will not believe it until they see it lived out first. George Hunter writes, First, some people wonder whether we really believe what we say because they know a lot of people don't. Second, some people do not doubt that we believe it. They just wonder if we live by it. Third, some people do not doubt that we believe it or live by it. They wonder whether it makes much of a difference in our lives. Fourth, and more recently, they wonder whether Christianity can make a difference in the world as related to the struggles around justice, reconciliation, peace, and nature's health. Often, if they perceive the authentic sign and the answers they experience, they become more open to what it means and could mean for them. In other words, in watching and observing us, if they see Jesus, they're more likely to consider Jesus for themselves and not just a nice thing that you believe. Paul pushes us to contextualization and a relationship in these verses, as he says in 19, in order to win people. That's the point. That's the whole point behind all of this. So for those of you taking notes today, this is the third and final observation as to how we can live in and live out the gospel. Excuse me. Hopefully you see this clearly. The gospel is intentional. The gospel is intentional. Paul is thinking about all of this. How am I going to get this done? Paul cares about it. This is what he says in verse 22. To the weak I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I might possibly say something. Paul says, look, I'm going to do whatever I got to do in order to introduce people to who Jesus is. And I'm going to do it in a way that makes sense to them because I love them. And we now understand that Paul sees the gospel as missional and relational. But in this last section, 24 to 27, Paul helps us, helps us understand not only how we have to be intentional, but also how we ensure that we continue to run this race the rest of our lives. I want us to think about that implication for a moment. Family, this is a job that we never retire from. It, it, it's, it's, it's a job that we don't, we don't just simply trudge along it. It's not a marathon. It's a series of strategic sprints. But if we have as our goal, our idea is I just need to make as much money as I can and go retire to a beach in Florida somewhere and let people leave me alone, we have missed the point of the gospel. Yes. It's great that you don't work anymore. Phenomenal. 
Retirement is a wonderful thing. I've done it once. It's great. But if we're not on mission for the rest of our lives, we have missed what God has called us here to do. Because you never stop living in the gospel, we can never stop living out the gospel. Paul says, don't you know that the runners in the stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body, that's intentionality, and bring it under strict control so that, and here's his reason, after preaching to my others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul reminds us it's not just a, a super Christian thing to do. He's saying living in and living out the gospel is for all of us every single day and not just on Sundays. It's not something we can compartmentalize. It's who we have to be. But Paul tells us we have to run with purpose and that purpose is to finish well. In verses 25 and 26, Paul is getting on this idea of intentionality. But because he's using sports metaphors here, I want to point out something. The way in which professional athletes train and the intensity at which they train has changed over the years, has it not? I want you to think about this. The most shocking example to me is the sport of golf. Some of you are like, it's not a sport. I get it. But listen, when I was growing up, the only thing the golf, the golfer, the only weights a golfer listed was about 12 ounces, and it was between the, the front nine and the back nine. Now, with a few notable exceptions, it's incredible to see the shape at which golf has changed, literally. There are athletes on the field now, and the game has raised its level. Some of you are like, why would you watch golf? I, there's, you know, I don't know. So I can have conversations with people about golf. That's <laughs> Paul reminds us in verse 25 that they are all doing, they're doing all of that for something that passes away, but we are running in a race that has eternal consequences, not just for ourselves, but for others. And so he tells us in verse 26, don't just do it aimlessly, be intentional. Now, while this applies to the individual, it also applies to the church. The church must be intentional. See, God is a God of order and planning. He says, come, let us reason together. God thinks through things. If the church is to be faithful stewards of the people, resources, time, and finances that God allows us to have, we need to make sure we have the systems and structures in place to ensure we're being wise with all that God allows us. Additionally, putting systems and structures in place not only ensures accountability, but it actually frees up our staff to love people well without worrying about whether people are slipping through the cracks or falling out without anybody finding them. But there's one final benefit to being intentional and, dis- and disciplined. Paul says in verse 27, instead I discipline my body, bring it under strict control, so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And so this keeps both us individually and as a church from not finishing the race well. Some people will start great, but limp to the finish line, having caused damage and pain and a bad reputation to the rest of us who are simply trying to be good with the gospel that God has given us. If our job is still to model Jesus the world around him, then we, what are we showing to those who don't know him? Okay, so here's the application. What do we do with this? Here's some questions I'd like you to wrestle with this week, family. First, are you intentional about hanging with people that don't know Jesus? Are you intentional with hanging with people that don't know Jesus? If not, you should be. Justin, uh, where are we building relationships is the question we have to ask ourselves. Uh, Justin works really hard to build relationships with the, the people down here on San Fernando, the business owners. He's done a phenomenal job with purpose. I'm wearing Wild Carvery shirt today because our friend Sam owns that. And uh, we go in there all the time trying to build relationships with Sam. Please go in there and eat and tell him you're from Story City Church. Right? 
Because to build relationships, we have to be consistent. I have a relationship uh, with a bunch of people at a cigar lounge that I visit regularly. And I'm not just going in there and smoking cigars. I'm trying to have purposeful, intentional conversations. And it's led to all kinds of incredible gospel conversations. But it's because I'm consistent. I'm there all the time. We're building a relationship. I'm talking to people. Second question. Are you building relationships not for the sake of getting them to the church? That's transactional. But are you, and not trying to get them saved, but are you simply loving them for who they are and where they're at in life? Let the Holy Spirit worry about what he's going to do with them. He will bring them to him if that's his desire. Our job is simply to model Jesus, to know them and love them in a way that makes sense that they could see that Jesus could know and love them too. Third, is the language and tone the right one for the person you're talking with? Do you know them well enough to know? Do we understand our context like Paul has called us to or where their backstories and how that plays into how they perceive the world? And lastly, are you pointing to Jesus? I can be the best neighbor in the world, but if I do it not in the name of Jesus, then I've just showed them a great moral neighbor. I've done nothing but show them to be moral and not to apprentice Jesus. And so learning to be intentional includes being natural as I talk about who Jesus is, what he's done, and how that shapes and informs everything that I do. I hope this is helpful. I hope this has been useful to you today. Remember this, because we live within the gospel, We must live out the gospel. And that means we have to live it out in ways that are missional, relational, and intentional. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have given us everything. Not because we deserved it. Not because we've earned it. Help change our hearts and our minds to the way that we interact with people. How we love them. I pray that you'd help us, those of us who have grown up in a Christian culture, as we transition, Lord, to post-Christian and pre-Christian pagan cultures, would you help us to learn how to reevaluate the way that we speak, the way that we love, the way that we present you. Help us to be constantly missional, intentional, relational. In the name of Jesus, amen.